If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in. This is the August 30th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974, striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S plus communities. I'm Neil Schleifer in New York. Welcome. On this outing, it's an Oscar triple play and a refugee love story. One of the movies we have always been just wild about was the 1997 film, Wild, the biography of poet-playwright Oscar Wilde, which leads us with a rickety cassette recorder to the West Hollywood hotel room of the actor Stephen Fry. British director Brian Gilbert's Wild is a lush historical drama that strives above all else to provide a rare, well-rounded portrait of Oscar Wilde, the celebrated playwright, wit, and convicted sodomite. The title role is beautifully played by Stephen Fry, showing us both a family man who has two young sons and cherishes his wife, and a middle-aged gay man in love with his Bosie, the young, petulant Lord Alfred Douglas, in the attractive form of actor Jude Law. I'd be better off staying at my mother's. At least she's there. Bosie, you asked me specially to take this house. Well, no, I'm bored with it. And with you. I can't give it up. It's paid for in advance. Until I finish my new... Bosie, dear. You have beauty, you have breeding, and most glorious of all, you have youth. But you are very fantastical if you think that pleasures don't have to be earned and paid for. Whenever I want to do anything, you say you can't afford it. Do you give all those renters cigarette cases? But I've lavished presents on you. Every penny I've earned from my play, I have spent on you. Oh, I'm sure you've been counting. You're so mean and penny-pinching and middle-class. All you can think about is your bank balance. Percy, for God's sake, this is intolerable. No gentleman ever has the slightest idea what his bank balance is. Stephen Fry is a big gentleman with an enormous intellect and a striking resemblance to Oscar Wilde. We met to discuss the film in his West Hollywood hotel room overlooking the Sunset Strip. Normally cast in comedic films like Peter's Friends, Cold Comfort Farm, and A Fish Called Wanda, his face is warm and open, and his wit is quick. My opening question was about sex. There are a number of sex scenes. I wouldn't say a lot. I think there are probably more scenes in which people eat. 
and in which they have sex, but of course people are very hung up about sex, so they count the sex scenes and they don't count the eating scenes. And oddly enough, they always claim that they're not shocked by the sex scenes, in which case you say, well, why did you count them, but not the eating scenes? The fact is, sex scenes mean a lot to people, and they, they can't admit it. Um, it's very important. I mean, some people might be offended by it, but then that's the point. We have to confront the fact that society, although it's now 100 years later, has not changed that radically. People still are slightly afraid of the sight of lovemaking. Um, I don't know why this should be, um, but they are. I mean, I can understand why it speaks to a deep part of ourselves, because sex is a deep part of ourselves, um, and mostly a private one, just uh, as lots of things are. But it's not as powerful or as terrifying as love, um, you know, the love you feel for someone that is extrinsic to sex. I, myself, had not really done any sex scenes, well, not, not really, I hadn't done any sex scenes on film before, so I was obviously slightly nervous about it. Um, I wasn't sure how it was done. I mean, I knew the sort of, I knew there was such a thing as a closed set in which only the minimum number of personnel would be there, so when you're doing a love scene, there's only the script girl, you know, continuity, there's only the director, the camera operator, the sound boom operator, the sound recordist, the dolly grip, <laughs> about 15 or 20 people, which is a reduced set, staring at your glowing buttocks. Well, not my glowing buttocks, fortunately, which are not, you'll be happy to know too much on view. Um, and in fact, it's one of the strange things that is that Wilde, it seems, from all the ev evidence one can gather, was really more not exactly a voyeur, but he was not, he was rather ashamed of his own body, I think, compared to that of someone, someone like Bosie's, and he didn't like revealing himself to Bosie and to others. Um, but the sex scenes are very important. You, you know, it would be a deeply dishonest film if you didn't, uh, if you didn't show that the sexuality that, that Wilde discovered to be his nature was physical as well as emotional and spiritual and all the other things that love is. And love is complete, and it would be quite wrong for people to say, oh, well, why can't you just cut away? We all know what's going on, because that's not the, that's not the point. Of course we know what's going on, but, you, but we see it because it is a deep part of the experience to him, a really important one. And um, uh, to, to cut away from it would be to be Victorian. And, and the fact is, with this film, part of what I think it does is it makes us confront those parts of us that still are Victorian. However grown up we think we are, we still live in a very infantile culture that still cannot cope with the idea of these kinds of things. Now what's interesting, the real paradox, I think, is that what we actually can't cope with is the love, the, the real affection that... Uh, that men can feel for each other, that it is as real as any other kind of love. It's as real as parental love, it's as real as a child's love and need for its parents, or a parent's love and need for its child. It's as real as a man's love for a woman. And love is a great deal more scary, a great deal more terrifying than sex. Stevens' co-star, Jude Law, was last seen as the tough young hustler at the heart of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, and as a swimmer in the perfect gene pool of Gattaca. I asked him about working with his traffic-stopping heartthrob. I was thrilled, of course, that Jude Law was cast as Bosie because, you know, the, the Bosie has to be a number of things. Um, it, it has to be, you know, he has to be cast for an extraordinary actor who, who is able to play the, the range of petulance and, and terrible temper and, and vulnerability and sort of impossible, impulsive mixture of things that Bosie has. But also they have to be very beautiful, and, and Jude is very beautiful, um, very beautiful indeed. And um, he made it so much easier. I mean, when we, we rehearsed her, um, and uh, I was worried as the only gay person on the set, well, not the only gay person on the set, obviously the wardrobe and hair and everything was, as usual, uh, plenty, of, um, plenty of gay personnel represented, but, uh, uh, and the writer, Julian Mitchell, was gay, and, but um, no one else particularly. Um, not that it's important that they should have been or should not have been, it just, you know, one is aware of such a thing when it comes to love scenes like that, that the three young men that Wilde has sex with in the film were all straight um, and all, you know, um, fantastic actors. But I was worried that they might think, as I've been public publicly gay in Britain for, you know, since, since I started in the business, that maybe they would think I was getting something out of the scenes that they weren't, and that this would, um, 
you know, embarrass them or, or, or something. And, of course, it's embarrassed me, the thought of the possibility of it and so on, but they so rapidly showed that this was not, you know, they were fantastic about it. Um, of course, the British press, being the British press, you know, went completely insane. Um, uh, a newspaper called The Mail on Sunday um, put out a story that I'd, I'd had to have my knee taped to my stomach. So excited was I at, at being in bed with Jude Law that I was, you know, the ungovernable fury of my knee had to be had to be clamped to my belly button in order to in order to make the filming happen. Which is, I couldn't work out whether to be outraged or, or extremely flattered by such a such a ludicrous um, such a ludicrous story, which I, I hasten to tell you is not true, because um, filming just doesn't quite work like that. You know, um, you know, it's actually more erotic to be involved in a. Um, feel full of carrots, frankly, than, um, <laughs> than filming, because, you know, there's so much else to worry about. Besides a more open depiction of wild sexuality, the film speeds through the often dramatized trial to show us the aftermath and the devastation of the verdict. Oscar Wilde! The crime of which you have been convicted is so bad that I shall pass the severest sentence that the law will allow. In my judgment, it is totally inadequate for such a case as this. It is the worst case I have ever tried. The sentence of the court is that you'll be imprisoned and held to hard labor for two years. Shame. Pervert. It was simply extraordinary to film in the prison. I think we had about three days in, in Oxford jail, in fact, because Reading Jail has been so modernised now that it's, uh, it's quite hard to recognise uh, the original part, though there is the essential structure inside has remained the same, and uh, um, there is a cell that was Oscar's cell in Reading Jail, and um, prisoners are very proud to be put there. <laughs> Rather oddly, even these great bruising heterosexual prisoners still say, this is Oscar Wilde's cell, this is... You know, they're very proud of it. But, yeah, I mean, it is just terrifying. Um, Victorian prisons were no joke. Um, two years hard labour. It's extraordinary to imagine putting a man through that. The, in the film, we show the treadmill that uh, Wilde had to work on, this enormous mill where you just tread up and down, climbing 6,000 feet a day. Unbelievable, back-breaking horror. Uh, people often slipped through it and broke legs and were killed. And it didn't even drive so much as a light bulb or a, or a, you know, a, a washing machine or anything. It was just simply torture. Uh, and people of Wilde's background were not expected to last more than nine months. They usually killed them. I mean, it, it, it was horrible, absolutely horrible. And for what, you know? I mean, it, it, it is extraordinary to think that it really isn't that long ago. And so sort of in, those, in that awful costume, that sort of itchy surge prison uniform, um, I would sort of sit there and think, you know, if I had just by some accident been born 80 or 100 years earlier, you know, that would be the prospect that overhung me every time, you know, if I wanted to, you know, fulfil my destiny as a gay man, to, 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 to live uh, as I should live, you know, to, to uh, realise my nature, as it were. And that's a terrifying thought. Besides Stephen Fry and Jude Law, the film features a marvellous performance by Vanessa Redgrave as Oscar's mother. Wild is a Sony Classics picture. Life cheats us with shadows. We ask it for pleasure, it gives it to us with bitterness and disappointment in its train. And we find ourselves looking with dull heart of stone at the tress of gold-flecked hair that we had once so wildly worshipped and so madly kissed. Oscar! Until next time, this is Steve Pride.
Though Stephen Fry and Jude Law have the leads in Wild, the film also launched the career of Orlando Bloom, who appears as one of Oscar Wilde's rent boys. After hitting it big as a pirate of the Caribbean, Orlando doesn't have to worry about rent. He can afford a condo of his own. Oh, and speaking of affordable rentals, you can stream Wilde on Hulu Premium. The next great film about Oscar Wilde was 2018's The Happy Prince. This time, we were ushered into Rupert Everett's hotel room with a much fancier digital recorder. Oscar Wilde once said, To live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist. That is all. And the latter years of his life are examined in an earnest new film from... My name is Rupert Everett. My film is called The Happy Prince, and it's about the life of Oscar Wilde in exile. This film came about, really, because I think in about 2005 or 2006, my career had kind of come to a standstill, and I couldn't face it. And so I thought I must try and write myself a role that maybe I could uh, play and get my career back on track. And I suppose this felt like the obvious subject to deal with or to try and write about. I I suppose, uh, you know, having embarked on a career in show business and being gay, you can't fail to look at other gay people in show business and see how they fare. And in that sense, Wilde is a kind of patron saint or a Christ figure, actually, for me. And so it seemed like the type of story that I could put everything into somehow. It was definitely a a hard film to finance. It really is a European film. It's made out of Germany from the Bavarian Film Fund, out of Belgium, a little bit out of England, a little bit out of Italy, and a bit of equity. And that's how the whole thing came together. It's a juggling act, making those kind of movies, because you manage to get a piece of money from, say, Bavaria in January 2017, but that money only lasts for a year. And if you haven't got all the other bits of money from Eurimage or the Belgian Film Fund or the Italian Rai, if they haven't come in within that year, so the, you have, juggling it together is a pretty complicated thing too. Did anyone ever say, I love your screenplay about Oscar Wilde, but does the character have to be gay? <laughs> no one did that yet. <laughs> you were one of the first film stars to be always out and open about your sexuality. I didn't really have any choice. I liked going out to clubs and uh, dancing and stuff like that. So there's no possibility, even if I'd wanted to, of living one of those cloistered gay lives where you just lived inside four walls and ordered in and continued with a show business career. For me, that wasn't how I saw the whole game, really. Uh, I saw it more about trying to express yourself somewhere. So I don't regret it. It's definitely been difficult, but I think all actors probably have something they feel has been very tough for them or difficult to overcome. In your book, Hello Darling, I'm Working, you reveal not only your sexuality, but your days as a rent boy in Paris. It would be difficult to stay closeted after that. Right, exactly. There was no possibility ever for me to hide, really, because I was always out and about on the gay scene. So it wasn't really a a choice or any lofty type of choice that I made or sacrificial choice. It was just that's how there was no possibility of me being anything else, really. Did it dampen your chances of being a bigger star? Yes, I think the problem mostly is at the very beginning when I did Another Country, 
my first film. Remember the reaction that you shouldn't play a gay role. It's very, very bad. You won't get any more jobs after playing a gay role. And I did get one more job, really good one, which was my next film, uh, Dance with a Stranger. But after that, no, I didn't get any other jobs. And then, uh, you know, my comeback, really, uh, I got a few jobs and I, and I developed a career in Italy, uh, which is what eventually led me to making Cemetery Man because they didn't really... I, I, I made a, a film with Francesco Rosi and another one, uh, I made four or five films there and I, I thought I should move to Europe and try and become a European actor and maybe that would be a little bit more forgiving or more understanding of being someone like me and in one sense that was true and then I managed to get back a little bit in Hollywood when I did my best friend's wedding and then I became really just famous for being gay which is a difficult thing probably for an actor but again and the trouble with that was at that point uh, it became a commercial thing and then all the straights wanted to play gay roles and then once the straights wanted to play the gay roles then the gays were out of the gay roles too, to a certain extent. And now it's not reciprocated. The gays can't play the straight roles. No gay person gets an award for playing a straight character. But flip the script and the Academy pays sudden attention. Yeah, straight away. Full penetration. That's the difficulty of the situation. What was your biggest surprise about Oscar Wilde? I felt weirdly about Oscar Wilde always that I just knew him. So I didn't find there were any surprises much. I think the one thing that surprised me about him but it didn't really because I think one of the things I love about him is he's quite a selfish person this other guy went to court with him the guy who ran the brothel and he was a very nice guy actually because he was offered immunity if he shopped Oscar and he didn't and so he had two years of hard labor as well but never once is there any mention of him by any of them afterwards which I think is such an extraordinary thing because he, you know, he did a really amazingly heroic thing in standing beside Oscar. Oscar's never mentioned him afterwards. That's the thing that slightly surprised me, this propensity that he has for selfishness. But I knew he was a selfish person. Thing is, I like him for all those things. I like him for the vanity, for the fact that he was such a big star that he thought the whole world, you know, was kind of orbiting around him which was how he made his, you know, initial major blunder. I love all those things about him. But that's, I suppose, because I come from an era before political correctness where a hero could have been still someone who was incredibly flawed. So all those things are things I love. Ahimayu is also doing a piece on a Pasadena production of Oscar Wilde's Portrait of Dorian Gray that portrays the protagonist as homosexual. Dorian Gray's always been a gay character. That's the whole point of when, uh, at the very beginning, Lord Henry Wooten is talking to him as he's having his portrait painted, and he reads him, and he says, you've had dreams uh, that would make you blush, and you should fulfill them. Uh, you, should, uh, you shouldn't hide them and closet them. You should uh, fulfill them. Go and do it. What do you hope audiences take away from the film? I always feel uneasy when you listen to directors and people talking about the message they want to give people. Because really, the only reason I, I made the film was to celebrate my own fascination and affection and how important Oscar's been in my life and um, has comforted me somehow in my life at various times. And I feel that all I can hope, really, is that my passion and affection and fascination manages to leap through the footlights 
and into the hearts of the spectator. I don't know whether I could ask for more than that. I don't mean to pry, but since you were both the star and the director of The Happy Prince, did you have to sleep with yourself to get the role? Endlessly, yeah, and I'm suing. (laughs) This has been a conversation with writer-director Rupert Everett about his film The Happy Prince, a look at the final years of Oscar Wilde. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. The Happy Prince can be rented to stream on Amazon Prime. It's time to take a break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. American pianist Van Cliburn, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Famed American classical pianist Van Cliburn started taking piano lessons from his mother at age three, and at 23 won the first Tchaikovsky piano competition in Moscow. Gaining instant fame, he toured the U.S. and abroad. He was a favorite at the White House, playing for every U.S. president from Dwight D. Eisenhower to Barack Obama. Clyburn's early recordings were huge bestsellers. His album of Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto No. 1 sold over a million copies. In 1958, he won a Grammy Award for Best Classical Performance for this recording. Clyburn's romantic relationship with Thomas Zaremba became public in 1995, when Zaremba sued Clyburn for millions of dollars in palimony. They had met in 1966. The suit was dismissed since there was nothing written to support their relationship. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Michael Simpson. Hello, I'm Stephen Fry. The great Oscar Wilde once said, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. That's why it's imperative that we stay informed, so pull up your ears. An excellent way to do this is by listening to Southern California's longest-running radio program for the gay and lesbian community, IMRU. Welcome back. I'm Neil Schleifer in New York, and you're listening to I Am Are You Radio Magazine. We promised you three Oscars, but not necessarily three Wilds. Next, instead, it's Oscar Quintero, also known as K. Sedia, in a special pre COVID Gatino report. <laughs> Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Gaytino Report, voices from the Latino LGBTQ community. I'm Dan Guerrero, or if you can roll your R's, Guerrero. And welcome to my guest, Oscar Quintero, a.k.a. the fabulous Quesadilla, the glittering star of L.A.'s wildly popular Chico's Angels, a Latina drag version of You Know What, 1970s TV show. This Spanglish comedy romp is in its 14th year at the Cavern Club Theater in Silver Lake. But there's much more to Oscar than Quesadilla, although she would strongly disagree. <laughs> Welcome, Oscar. Hi, hi, hi. How Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited. I've seen the show a couple of times, and, and I am one of your many fans. Oh, very nice. I want to just say, drag can be kind of a loaded word, uh-huh. you know, but... You consider yourself not a drag queen or a drag performer or female impersonator, but simply a character actor. An actor, yeah. If somebody calls me a drag queen, I'm not like, uh, I'm not a drag queen. Because for lack of a better term, that's what I do. I perform in drag. I don't look at it as a bad word. But I think most people, when they think of a drag queen, they think clubs, lip syncing. And I 
don't do that because I'm not very good at that. So I kind of found another niche for myself within the drag world. It's just a different style. I've auditioned for RuPaul's Drag Race three times and I haven't gotten on the show. And wow. that one of the things I've always mentioned on my application is like, I don't lip sync because I'm terrible at it. And I wonder if that's part of the reason I haven't gotten on. Because the few times that I've done it, I felt more exposed than when I was actually singing. I felt just naked. And I was like, I don't like this. It didn't feel good. I didn't realize that everybody has to lip sync on that show. Well, it's part of the curriculum uh-huh. at the end. Uh-huh. If you're one of the final two, right. you have to lip sync for your life. Well, then that. you better learn. Sister. Right? <laughs> Get with it. Right. Get with it. Well, I just figured it wasn't for me. Would mm-hmm. it be fair to call Quesadilla your alter ego, which is, you know, a clone, your second self? Are you alike? Are you completely different? Uh, Sure. Sure. I mean, you know what? It's funny because I feel like Kay's a version of myself that I wish I had the confidence to be. So yeah, you could say she's my alter ego. She's a version of myself that is fearless in in some ways. Some would say clueless. (laughs) There's a very fine line because when I was single, I was a lot braver to go up to people and just flirt. I guess because I knew it was safe. There would be no uh, repercussions. Repercussions. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny though. I got to say there was a part of me that was kind of quiet and a bit of a wallflower. But I feel like somehow the years of doing quesadilla, I met in the middle. The way I would describe myself when I was younger, it's like I would apologize before I even walked in the room. You know what I mean? I was just so scared of everyone and people and just basic conversation scared me. You come from a family of six, right? I'm the youngest of six. And Hacienda Heights. Yeah. Which I've heard of. Hacienda Heights! Me and Fergie. (laughs) You learned early that you had to speak up in order to be noticed in that group of six. So how does that jive with what you just said? Well, my mother was this loud drunk. For lack of a better term, she was the life of the party. And our world revolved around my mother. My brothers and sisters all tried to find their voice within her world. And it was alcohol parties every weekend. And it just became louder and louder and violent. So yeah, in order for me to stand out or to even be noticed in that house, I had to get louder. And most of the times I would be performing to Grease soundtrack in the living room for my family and that kind of stuff. Was Quesadilla screaming to come out that early? I guess she was in one way or another, but I remember when I was a kid, I put this belt that my mother had that was all fringe, and I just remember kind of wiggling my hips and loved the way it felt, and then I put my mom's heels on, and I was just playing in her room, and I was probably like four or five. My father walked in and flipped out, and cool. I think I got the belt that night or something. You know, so then I knew there's something wrong with this. I, I'm not supposed to do this. And it was very innocent. Like, I didn't think twice of it when I was doing it. And then there was a couple years that I dressed in drag, and I kind of realized that was purdy, so that helped. And it just went from there, and I was just like, wow, this is fun. It was a freedom. But, you know, the way I describe my drag is I'm a clown. I'm purely a clown. That's why the makeup is exaggerated, and it's over the top, and it's garage clown makeup is what I call it. I love that, too. Yeah. Quesadilla has spawned quite a cottage industry for Oscar, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's other shows, Love Boat Chicas, Chicas in Chains, and a Tupperware Fiesta Empire, literally. Why don't we talk to Quesadilla about how she made Oscar Quintero a star? You want to call her in? Yeah. Hey, Kay, come here. We're helping. (laughs) Hey, Bang. Hey, how are you? Well, how are you? I'm okay just sitting here being sexy, but I can't help it then. It just happens. You either got it or you ain't. Thank you. And you got it. Thank you. Obviously, thank you for noticing. Hard not to. (laughs) But let me ask you a question. I went to your website, which, Uh by the way, looks like a piñata exploded. Thank you. That's my life. In a good way. Mm -hmm. But if I may, I want to tell our, our listeners some of the pages that you can click on. Okay. There's... Please, underdressing me with your eyes. Yes. There's Jew Don't Know My Life. Yes. And your videos, your videos, <laughs> America's Next Top Chica Model. Uh-huh. And a YouTube cooking show, or as you call it, Jew-tube. Jew-tube. 
yes. YouTube. <laughs> tell me about, uh, well, tell me whatever you want. How did you and Oscar meet? Well, you know how we met? We, I did a pageant because, you know, I'm a beauty queen. Very beauty. Thank you. And I competed for the Quest for the Crown, which was like a Miss Universe pageant back in 2000 when I was, you know, five years old. Anyway, but it was my first time ever doing a big production like that. It was at the Wiltern Theater in Los Angeles, Celebrity Judges, and... I was so in awe. First of all, I was just happy that they let me in the building. And the fact that I ended up doing so well, I became the crowd favorite. I was the first runner-up. I should have won, but whatever. Um, you know, they didn't have a donkey on stage. I did. That's all I'm saying. I should have won. And it literally just changed the course of my life that night because I ended up performing a drag strip that following week. I ended up doing a short film. And then before you know it, I had a full-on career. And there's something you don't know about that night. What is it? I was there. You were there? I was there. Wasn't I the favorite? Eh. No, oh. you were. Oh, come on. No, no, listen, listen. Jimmy Cuomo, who does the sets for it every yeah, yeah. year, is, is a very good friend. Uh -huh. And so I was there, and I thought you were fabulous. And I wanted you to win not only because you were fabulous, mm -hmm. but because you were Latina. Of course. I was like, I want that. And, and yeah, you came awfully close. I, do you birth. know what? But I got. I remember that night feeling like, oh my gosh! I was so convinced I was gonna be in last place, and then when I was the final two, me and his friends, I was like, is this really happening right now? <laughs> it was a very exciting night. But it's funny, full circle. They haven't officially announced it, so I guess this is the official announcement. Patrick Rush, who has hosted the event every year, has decided that last year was his last year. They asked me to take over as host. Can you believe it? Oh my god. A little booty queen from Tijuana is the host of the new that Best in Drake is show. Fantastic. Yes. And we got the scoop right here on you the Gatino Report. Mm -hmm. This is Dan Guerrero with the Gatino Report. And I'm talking to actor Oscar Quintero, aka Quesadilla of Chico's Angels. You have a real rags to riches story because you were born in Tijuana, mm -hmm. as you say, mm -hmm. the youngest of 18 children. 18 and according to Ju, the prettiest. I can't help it. That's what I always tell people. Don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Trust me, after a few minutes, you'll find many other reasons to hate me. <laughs> you won the Miss Tijuana Natural Springs Water Contest. The water that spring right through you. <laughs> but I want to hear about a torrid love affair that you had with a hunky immigration officer. Oh, it was so nice. It was the way I got here the first time. You know, I'm not afraid <laughs> to sleep my way to the middle. I'm not. We slept in the same bed. That's all we did. But it was nice. It was a good time. And it helped me get across the border for the first time. But it also inspired, can I tell you my movie pitch that I want to do? Sure. It's called Tijuana A Gogo. It's about a go-go dancer who falls in love with the immigration officer. They have a love affair, and she keeps trying to cross the border. One day, he just lets her pass by. And it's all done to, like, 60s music. Almost like Sweet Charity meets Tijuana Hookers. Another scoop for the Gay Tier right? Report. I, I'm on a roll here. <laughs> Pero you know what, mija? I see Oscar's looking a little miffed over there in the oh, corner. Don't even look at him. He no, always, pero, pero that's what? his resting beach face. But you don't want to upset him because he is your ride home. Uh, I guess so. Right? So yes. let, let, let's bring Oscar back. Okay, Dan, thank you so much for having me, Dan. Hey, Oscar, come back. They want to talk to you. I don't know why. Hi. Hi. Wow. <laughs> Schizophrenia right, right here in front of me. a little bit. <laughs> You talked a little bit about your family earlier. First of all, I want to back up on that because you said how, of course, your dad was shocked and smacked you. And that's, yeah. I'm sure, very common because, as you said, yeah. it was totally innocent. You weren't saying, I want to be a girl. Yeah. You weren't saying, I'm gay. You just were plain, you know? And, yeah. and uh, that squishes a lot of kids that early who are yeah. doing something innocent that society maybe looks at differently and you lose time because then you got to rebuild later in life. But you know what? I, I don't hate my father for it because I knew he's a product of his time. Of course. And we were all taught that's wrong. 
boys do A, B, and C, girls do D, C, and F. And we're all conditioned to believe that this is the way we're supposed to be. And my father fell right into that. I think he had a fourth or fifth grade education. He came here on top of a train when he was a kid to work in the field, to send money back to his nine brothers and sisters. So I don't fault him for it. It was was a product of his environment. And the funny thing is my father became my biggest fan when I started doing Quesadilla you know, before he passed. And he came to all my shows. He was front and center. And there's a bunch of pictures of us. And and then I remember one time I brought him up on stage when I was doing the curtain call and audience went just ballistic for him. So he loved it. And I remember coming home to my sisters. I had just done a Tupper party. I was walking in to her house. And my nephew, who was like six years old at the time, he was just nonchalantly passed by and said, hi, Quesadilla. And my dad started busting up. It became so normal in our family for me to walk in and drag now. It was... (laughs) That's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. And you're right. You know, listen, parents do the best they can. They goofed mm-hmm. us all up, as their parents did. Yeah. They didn't do it on purpose. You do the best you know with the tools you have at that time, and there you go. You know, and I'm a parent now, and I'm sure I'm going to screw my kid up in different ways. Oh, I have no doubt. <laughs> yes. But let me ask you this. One-year-old baby, yeah. are you insane? You know, it's funny. I've always wanted a family of my own. And then my husband, when I first brought it up to him, he was like, no, I don't want children. <laughs> Again, we're conditioned to think that's not for us as gay men. But we were able to have a legal wedding and it was a celebration of love. We had 150 guests, including our families. And after about a year of me trying to convince him, he was like, I guess that's the next progression in a relationship is that you create a family. And I'll tell you, it was such a challenging process And the whole year has been challenging, but I would not change a thing. Like sometimes I just look at him or I'm like, I'm in the living room dancing with him when we're watching one of his cartoons or something. And I just start like getting choked up. I'm like, can't believe he's mine. You know, I get to raise this little nugget. And it's, I wish more in the LGBT community could experience this because we're told this isn't for you. You don't get to do this. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Somebody else made those rules and I'm going to break those rules as much as I can because this is such a wonderful experience and it's not for everyone the first probably five of my closest gay friends when I first told them hey we're gonna have a baby they're like and I'm not kidding all five of them like why why would you want to but there are straight couples that don't have kids nobody says you have to have kids gay or straight but I think that reaction was so conditioned to the way we thought about ourselves they're like no that we don't do that what are you doing you're you're going against the grain gay and lesbians don't do that I'm like I've always wanted a family. And sure enough, I still want one more child, even though this was literally the most challenging year for my husband and I, but I still want another child. But it's not easy, especially when you're older and the lack of sleep can uh, really kind of break you at certain points. But Well, I grew up in 1950s East L.A. as yeah. a gay boy. Oh, wow. And you could have said you were land on the moon sooner than have children or yeah. get married. It was not, I don't know, sometimes I think the younger people, young gay boys especially, and gay women think that we were always like, oh, someday I'm going to have a kid. Someday we're going to marry. You couldn't conceive of it. And so I, in particular, find it to hear beautiful stories like that. And by the time that, that it was possible to have children, it was too late for yeah. me. I hear that. But the funny thing is one of the biggest arguments my husband and I had when we were planning this, because, you know, we're of a certain age as well. Oh, you're a baby, for God's sake. I'm in my mid-40s. My husband's about to turn 50, but uh, was our age. And I kept saying, you know what? Again, these are somebody else's rules of when you are supposed to have children. However, I would say I get why younger people have kids because they can deal with the lack of sleep. That's right. That's right. Yeah, but you know what? It's never too late. I know everybody's older. I know it becomes harder. At least foster. All right, I'll get a child. Thank Never you. mind that I'm 77. <laughs> I'm 77. Is that all? <laughs>
<laughs> uh, I should have asked Kay, and I didn't, but but I'll ask you because she might have mentioned it to you. Yeah. The Tupperware parties sound wild. Oh, my gosh. And it's a big part of yeah, your career. It's probably 85% of my income. I fell into it. I went to a Tupperware party that a friend of mine had, and it was Frank, the old folk singer. She calls herself the all-American Jewish folk singing, surfing, lesbian Tupperware lady. And she looked like a milkman. She had a flat top. She would sing these little cute songs with the guitar at the Tupperware party. And I just sat there thinking, I could totally do this as quesadilla. I signed up with no expectations. I literally did it for the hell of it. And then within a couple years, I started making six figures. Most money I'd ever made in my job. I quit my full-time grocery worker job that I had for 13 years that I hated. And I started doing this full-time. But then it also just led me down other creative avenues. And I cannot imagine going back to like a nine to five again. I've opened Pandora's box. The whole creative aspect of putting a show together, of writing, of creating concepts and ideas, or this person says that. I mean, it fills my heart like nothing else ever has. The whole process does, not just the performing. It's all within the same family. The Tupperware kind of gave me an audience night after night where I started learning how to command a room, how to command a stage, and how to keep an audience engaged. A lot of my jokes would bomb, for me, the bigger joke is recovering from a bomb. That all became schooling for me is audience night after night after night. And very intimate. There'd be like 20, 30 people in the room or, or sometimes there'd be 10 people in the room. And I'm performing a full-on comedy musical show in their living room. I felt naked some days. And then some days I was like, mm, I got this. You know what I mean? It's a show. It's the same as if you're on stage and, and there's a thousand people out there. It's exactly. a show, whether there's three people and I've known shows with three people. Or, <laughs> so have we. Yeah. Or, or 1,500, and I've done those too. It's all the same. You do a show. I want to thank you so much, Oscar, for being here. And Kay, I want to thank you too. You got it! And I'll see you both at the Cavern Club. Thank I you, Dan, so much. Thank you so much. And thank you for giving us this platform too. It's great to have the gay Tinos out, out in the world. Oot and a boot. Oh, yeah. Oot and a boot. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. This is Dan Guerrero with the Gaytina Report, and I've been talking with actor Oscar Quintero, a.k.a. Quesadilla, of Chico's Angels. Until next time, ten orgullo, be proud. Quesadilla will be back at Silver Lake's The Cavern Club Theater in September. Find details at quesadilla.com. That's K-A-Y-S-E-D-I-A.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Pianist Van Clyburn's many honors, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The much-celebrated Van Clyburn received many awards. The Kennedy Center Honors in 2001, the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President George W. Bush in 2003, and the Russian Order of Friendship in 2004. Even a street in Fort Worth, Texas, bears his name. Sadly, Clyburn's last note sounded on February 27, 2013. His obituary listed his only survivor and friend of long-standing Thomas J. Smith. His service was held at Broadway Baptist Church in Fort Worth, where he regularly attended. Before his death, Clyburn donated one of the largest organs in the U.S. to his church in honor of his beloved mother. In 2008, the church was embroiled in controversy when it was expelled from the Southern Baptist Convention for welcoming gay and lesbian couples into full membership. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Michael Simpson.
Hi, I'm Randy Barbado. Hello, I'm Fenton Bailey, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Out front and out loud since 1974. You weren't even born. Stick to the text. Okay, sorry. Stay on. He said he was going <laughs> to... Welcome back. I'm Neil Schleifer, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. The plight of the Afghan refugees is both tragic and familiar. So, we've dusted off our 2016 interview with an Iranian refugee couple whose love story swam similar waters. My name is Nayef Harabit. My name is Betu Alami. Nayef, tell me about your life in Iraq. I was just a normal gay guy, and I cannot be myself there, and I, I was studying in a fine art college. And after the war, I just work with the U.S. Marines as translator. And what were you up to? After the war, he joined to the military and working with the collection forces. What was Iraq like for you when you were growing up? When did you know you were gay? I always know I'm gay, but it's not easy to be myself. With Iraq, with the liturgies and the culture, it's too difficult to be yourself because you get killed or they torture you to make you example for the others. So I cannot be myself there. Anyone can judge you and kill you just to be a gay there, either your own family. It's only hiding. That's the only way, is just to be acting in front of people, just to be the way how they want you to be. Mm-hmm. But you cannot be yourself if you're a gay guy. And how did you become a translator? After the war, and I just was graduate from my college, and um, I was very interesting to learn more about the English. And I saw the troops was doing a foot patrol back in my area in the south, and I just asked them if I could work with them. And they test my English, which is I learned from the English movies and the music. And they said, "Oh, you know what? You could help us to training the new police," which is this was a very basic in the beginning as translator. And after that, I start learning more and more and. In 2003, when the war started, everyone was happy with Americans, especially in the South. The dangers come after the militias coming out. And the militias and the religious people, same for people, and anyone working with Americans is traitor. Those come here to get our home from us. All that poison thinking is what make us a target and make me, as translator, a target from a lot of bad people. How did you two meet? He working translator, I'm soldier. We not speak English. We don't understand American military. He translators talk with me and with everyone in Iraq military. I see him every day. Sometimes we need help. We talk to him. Excuse me, we need help. He translators with Marines military. The first time I saw him, I was sitting and it was very warm in the afternoon and he was coming out of the shower. And that's when the first time I saw him and and I said, oh my God, that guy is really hot. But I was never think he have a feeling to know me more like how I did. So I was just trying to be as normal as, as me and translate and doing my job. 
But one day we go mission together for clearing the general hospital from the terrorists. And in that mission, we stay in a home together like it was Iraqi battalion, which is his battalion, an American team, which is the mid team in New Marines and some also some police. And we sit in that home 15 days. So we was doing our patrols in a day. And at night we were sitting together and he started inviting me for dinner and lunches. And we start talking and talking till we know each other more. And after that, we just find out we in love together. Yeah, there we stay together, we eat together. And we start knowing each other, we start talking together, and that's how, how it started. Did you think he may be gay? I feel like inside, the same we, we call gaydar, but not easy. I talk to him, I like to you, or I love you, or I take you gay or not gay. This is not easy there. But after three days... My inside so strong, I did call to him and I talked to him, I love you. But I don't know what's going on after, he may be not gay. This is big problems, not easy. It's dangerous. But yeah, of course. My job in military, he in translator with Marines, is not easy to, in government, family, friends, everyone. It's not easy, but... I told him, I love you. He don't give me answer. Just kiss me. He go back to room. After me, two days, I'm not eat anything. I think I forget and kiss. Uh, really beautiful feeling. It's amazing. Sometimes weird. It's crazy. He is my life. Inside, this is my dream. Really, I left to him after that, maybe month, but I don't tell him I love you or I like you. But this time we working together, same place. Yeah, after three days, I, I told so him. So do you want me to translate some or no, you, you get it all? Okay. Yeah, okay. but what about you, so, um, your reaction? So my reaction was, I know I was sure if he's gay or not. And, and after this kiss, I just know he want me. I mean, we could be together because he have the same feeling. And so that means he's gay, you know. And he w he went to vacation after that. And after the vacation, we just met and have more kisses, you know. And our relationship stopped. But at the same time, it was very dangerous. It was an American base. And it's difficult for us to be together. It's difficult from the Iraqi soldiers, difficult from the American side. We cannot just be ourselves there. So we start going different cities to meet at the hotel there and keep meeting each other till I get out to come to the United States. Tell me about leaving. How did that come about? There is a program to help translators because their life in danger to help them to go and live in the United States, give them asylum. And I have friends, they already did that, so I applied for my asylum, and I got it after 11 months. And that's after decision, me and him, we take it is we need, because we heard about life outside Iraq and the serious queer as folk. We saw there, there is a gay community, they can be themselves, because the way how we was living in Iraq, we not have a lot of touch with the other words. We thought it's the same things. No one would accept any gay. But after I saw that series with the five seasons, which is my favorite till now, and I said, oh, my God, we could be ourselves. We could married. We could adapt kids. We could do a lot. That's the life I want. That's the life he's want. I just fly, and I just thought it's easy for him to come behind me. And they sent him visa. I told him my boyfriend, and he could come and live together. But it's not what's easy about how I thought. 
If you'd known it would have been this difficult, would you have reservations about leaving? Yes, because there's no life for us there waiting. Is either we and me and him get married and just get separate, or maybe still meeting each other in a hiding place like a lot of other friends they still doing it, or they find about the relationship and they kill us. So there is no future for us there, and that's the only way we could do it. Talk about the incredible journey he had to go through to get over here. It took us five years of process. When we apply with the UN, we know there's a lot of other people, but we thought they're going to take care of him just to be as a gay. But we surprised in his first interview, he said they not really care about gays here. They care about families more, which make us really sad and disappointed. This is not what we thought. You make it to the U.S., and he only makes it as far as Lebanon. Then what? Because his background, because he'd been in military, they start just to reject him because they think he says he was a witness for torching. And in the same time, he was uh, legally there. So he cannot go anywhere because a lot of checkpoints in that country. And also, at any time he cut, he will send back to Iraq, which is... They already know about our relationship and they will kill him. This is Steve Pride speaking with Batu Alami and Naref Heredid. Naref, a translator for the U.S. military, and Batu, a soldier in the Iraqi army, faced persecution and possibly death if they stayed in their homeland. But immigration was a rough road, and after obtaining a visa, Naref was forced to leave his love behind, settling in Seattle with the determination to one day reunite with Batu in a place where they could express their love freely and without fear. What was it like leaving him behind? I come here and it's it's shock, it's beautiful, it's very gay-friendly. They have a very good LGBT community there. It makes me sad because I'm not here with him. I'm here without him and he's still there with all that situation. And I always feel I'm guilty. I'm the one put him in this, which is make me feel not happy in any time I meet friends or they said let's go to the party they enjoying it I not enjoying it because I'm thinking about him he should be with me we should be enjoying it together not just me and that was make me sad which make me calling him taking him picture every time I felt that bad and I felt like we decide to go out together but he's staying in this cage back in that country and I'm here free, so we just communicate together all that time by Skype, night, days, you know, watching each other, how we sleep, eating together by putting the plates in front of the camera. I eat breakfast, he eat dinner. And we keep in touch all that time, which is make our relationship more stronger. He know everything's about where I go, what's about my life and everything's, and I know everything's about him and how he's feeling, you know. So that will help us to have a hope we can get together. Most difficult, we have different times. We have, there is a night there and there is a sun here, which is make us feel we more farther away from each other. But he say by the sky, by we having a touch together every single day, every moment we free, that will make us have a hope. We will make that time going together, and we're going to be in the same time. We now have to live separate by different times. They already say no, and we was very hopeless. I almost 
decide to go live in Lebanon with him and whatever is happening to us will be heaven because there is no hope anymore for him to come. There is a hope for us to get together, but not here in the United States. So I just decided to go there. So how did Batu get out? How Batu get out is we heard about Canadian program is called Five Sponsor, which is if you know five Canadian people, they could sponsor you and help in you and take care of you so you could get to immigrate to go living in it. So we go there and we met the Rainbow Refugee uh, Organization and the United Church of Canada, and they work with it, and they was very nice people, and they do his paperwork. And after six months, the Canadian Embassy in Lebanon, they ask him about his first interview, and he get accepted in his first interview. They not focus his military life, they focus about his gay life, which is make it much easier for him to understand what he go through. Well, tell me about the meeting, the reunion. The big moment is in Canada and Vancouver when he get out of there. So we know he's coming. I went from Seattle to Vancouver Airport in Canada and I was waiting and I was like, is that really happening? Is that really he's coming? We're going to have the same time. We're going to hold each other. We're going to go to places together. You know, we're going to eat together. We're going to have to use the Skype because I'm really tired from Skype. It's been five years just Skyping every single time. All my breaks, my lunches at work, wherever I go, I have to hold the Skype. And I'm tired from it. I need to hold him, not hold the Skype. So when I saw him, he was wearing a T-shirt with a picture of me and him. And he just came and I called him, hey, Habibi, you know. I not believe it. He's here. And for him, he's taken him like at least a week to feel like he's really here. And I keep visit him every single week for a year and a half. Every single week. Uh, we get married in Vancouver first, just for the paperwork. And I get my citizen. And in that time, it's much easier for me to make him come and live with me in the United States. And we do our paperwork, and they ask us for an interview back in Montreal. So we fly all that way to Montreal, and it was 27 below the zero. And in 10 minutes, she said, after she asked me a question, ask us both, and she told him, you've been accepted to the United States. Just 10 minutes. We've been waiting five years to hear that. I want to scream. But I could because it's a lot of people and I'm in the embassy. So he said, just wait till we get out. And I just get crazy and scream and, and keep screaming. And he take me to the room and I keep screaming and screaming because this is what I've been waiting all that years. You know, it's finally heaven. Finally is heaven. Finally, we he's going to come and live with me with the place we would like to live in. And that's how is it. That's how it, my feel. And it was March 6, 2015. And I come in the morning and we get the passport with the visa and we come and we surprise all our friends with bed too. And after that, we get married in August. Eight. August 8. What's your life like here in the States now? Oh, my God. It's much, much better. I feel I'm the most happy in person now. I can focus in my art. I can focus in my work, which is I already get new position as a manager in home decor and when i see Betu working and going to school and excited and people like us about how we are be that's the place called home we love iraq we never want to leave iraq but we cannot live with people they don't want us to live there who want to kill us and make us example and torture us those people still there they not lucky they haven't all that and they still having it and we have to do something for it our home here in, in the United States, we now help eight or nine people. We help them. 
we need help more, more, so more. So we working with. Uh, we make a group. It's called New Life. We make it since we was in Canada. The group is between Canadian Americans and a lot of Iraqis. We already sponsor eight LGBT people from Iraq. We help them to find a job, get they stand, tell them about the culture, teach them how they use the bus. You know. So our message is that's the kind of help. It's not should be money. Just do whatever you could to help those people to get in their feet and help them to know more about this community here. Because I have a lot of friends, they come here and they shock. It's different culture. It's not easy for you to live all of your life back there. And you come here and you, yes, it's better, it's free. You could be yourself, but it's still different. It's still not home. It's still not the language. And most of those people, they're not speaking English. So we need the people here helping them to get in their feet. Same for me, before I'm not speaking English, never. Now it's fine, not 100%, but I understand something. Now my life here, my home here, I love him, he my family. What is it about him that you love the most? Everything. This has been a conversation with Nayef Harabin and Batu Alami. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Nayef and Butu live happily ever after in Seattle. You can stream out of Iraq on WOW Presents Plus or the Just Watch app. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Neil Schleifer. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you're interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email prideonscreen at yahoo.com. That's P-R-I-D-E-O-N-S-C-R-E-E-N at yahoo.com. As a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also, catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good night. My mama told me when I was young, we're all born superstars. She wrote my hair, put my lipstick on, in the glass of her bar. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are. She said, cause he made you perfect, baby. So hold your head up and you don't go far Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way Cause God made no mistakes I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way Love yourself and be great Love yourself and you'll slip On the right track Baby, I was born this way There ain't no other way Baby, I was born this way Baby, I was born this way I'm on the red track, baby, I was born this way.